Hey everyone, this is Guns, and welcome to another episode of the Z Table Podcast. My guest today is Chris Yu. Chris is the Executive Director of the Technology and Public Policy Team at the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change. Chris was previously a General Manager at Uber and has held senior roles at a number of public and private organizations. His work focuses on improving the dialogue between technology and those seeking to respond to it with policy and regulation. So naturally, this conversation revolves around that. More specifically, Chris and I discuss his decision to leave Uber and go work at the Tony Blair Institute, the importance of progress and his new progressive agenda, why the institutions of the 20th century are fundamentally mismatched to the challenges of the 21st century, why we should be optimists about government, his advice for tech people going into public policy, the biggest opportunities in artificial intelligence, his reading habits, and much, much more. Chris works on something that's very dear to me, the intersection of technology and public policy. So I had a ton of fun. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Chris, thank you so much for coming on the Seed Table podcast. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thank you so much for the invitation. Yeah. So you've always threaded the public and the private sector. When did you know that you were going to leave a rocket ship like Uber and go work for the Tony Blair Institute? That is a very good question. So as you say, I have worked in the public sector and in the private sector over the course of a number of years. I think I've done different things in the private sector, but always found myself drawn back to public policy. It seems to me that particularly in today's world, there are some you know, big challenges ahead that you know, I look at the state of politics and policymaking, and I find myself thinking that you know, our leaders are not always you know, addressing those challenges with the determination that they ought to be. And yeah, I was at Uber um, on the management team in the UK, having a blast. And I think, you know, doing, you know, really powerful things for the cities that we were working with. But I also felt at that particular moment in time that, you know, the world needed more people who had experience of technology in public policy. And, you know, was I prepared to wait out, you know, five years and come to it then? For me, no, I felt like I had to do it now because the pace of change is so fast and there is so much at stake. So look, I, it was not an easy decision to make. But I would strongly encourage more people in tech to spend time in policy and, of course, vice versa. You know, those two worlds have to understand each other better. You can get so far by being smart and subscribing to good newsletters and reading The Economist. But it's not a substitute for spending time immersed in the topic. Why do you think those two worlds don't really understand each other? I think, I think there's a number of things at play. I think partly it's to do with particularly in a country like the UK, you get a sort of separation of your intellectual heritage, if you like, right? So you find a lot of people in the center of government who are, you know, studied humanities or social sciences, social sciences and are, you know, bright but generalists. And then you have now this sort of cadre of people who have um, been on engineering or computer science or quant tracks who are now finding their ways into tech. So part of that is you know, it's got bifurcation quite early in people's careers. And then I think you have this other challenge, which is now these two worlds 
it's not just that they speak different languages, right? And they really do, right? You kind of, you put engineers and developers in front of politicians and, you know, neither side really understands each other at a, at a deep level, right? Like on a superficial level, maybe, but on a deep level, probably not. Some of that is, you know, constraints on both sides, right? You need to have people around you who've got the time to pass the information, to translate it for you, to help you understand the important concepts. And that's a lot of the work that we do, like on that kind of edge between these two worlds. But other parts of it is to do with, frankly, the um, incentives in the system. So I think that for the, for the kind of tech side, you know, we've often experienced, not always, but often experienced that dealing with government is frustrating. And so far better to just push ahead, right? Until, uh, push ahead as far as you can, right? And, you know, all the stuff about seek forgiveness, not permission, you know, use the technology to just go straight around whatever constraints are facing you. And it's very exhilarating to do that. And, you know, you can be left in a position where you think that we've done so much without needing to engage. So, you know, maybe we can control this. And I think on the, on the flip side of this, for the politicians, you've got to remember that, you know, most of what they experience is the same as everyone else as a consumer, right? So if you're sitting there and you're thinking like, what do I... Like, what do, I think, what do I think about the big challenges in technology? Well, you know, I've got Facebook on my phone and I've got Twitter on my phone and I get the torrent of abuse because I'm a public figure. And I've got YouTube and I see that it's, you know, auto-playing stuff to my kids and I'm not quite sure about it. And people are telling me it's full of terrorist content. And you can understand this very primal urge just to crack down. Because if you don't understand something, the easiest position to fall into is to oppose it. And, you know, politicians are busy. Like, I've got a lot of respect for them. And I think that most people in politics are doing it for the right reasons, even if you don't agree with their like, particular you know, political point of view. I think they well have good intentions. But, you know, if you don't understand and you're subject to this enormous pressure and time constraint and everything else, you say, look, I don't understand this, but I know that I can punish it. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, you know, all of that writ large is why you have, I think, you know, in the context of the tech lash and all of the other drama that you know you and I and the people listening will be very familiar with um, it's why we've had so much you know rage in the debate and actually so little progress on practical solutions so we've got to, we've got to fix that dialogue and it's got to be a bit of give on both sides uh, absolutely absolutely and one thing you, you mentioned so uh, really is don't understanding technology and they they still sort of the the first knee or the knee-jerk reaction is to punish it the funny thing is sometimes they, by trying to punish it, they don't foresee the second order consequences of their actions and they end up helping them. Like why, yeah. why do you think that happens? Why, why, why isn't the knee-jerk reaction to learn? And maybe at least you can actually punish them if you actually want it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, and it's, it's interesting, isn't it? So many, so many examples of this where people think they are doing something very smart. And of course, you know, like lots of us observing are totally unsurprised by the way that, particularly in technology, the way that systems adapt and business models change to respond. I think that there's, so look, I think on a meta level, the thing that you've got to remember is the political mindset is one in which, you know, your, your parliament, your national legislature is sovereign, right? Like you make the law, rule of law prevails, and, you know, that's considered to be the highest authority. So, you know, when you then have the situation now where companies are able either to move faster or in some ins instances exert 
power that overwhelms nation states, politicians just don't know how to react. I think a really good example of this is, you know, what we've seen with the, you know, all this debate about the contact tracing apps over the last six months, right? And put to one side, a technical discussion about whether Bluetooth proximity really is going to be effective. The thing that's been really interesting is watching so many countries near the beginning of this process. So Singapore does it first. Apple and Google come out with their exposure notification framework saying, you know, we'll make it better and not kill people's batteries, but we're going to put these strong privacy protections around it. And a number of countries, the UK included, said, well, look, we're going to do it our own way because, you know, we think we want to collect more data or whatever else. And I strongly suspect at the back of their mind, a lot of people in the system were thinking, well, you know, if we press hard enough, the tech companies will have to concede to our demands because that's how it's always worked, right? A government calls a company, you apply enough pressure, you know, you get your way or you get a compromise. And what you see now is Apple and Google held firm. You know, we're not prepared to change any of it because, you know, and I totally understand if I were them, I would not want to be the arbiter of which country is good and which country is bad, right? So, but I think it's a real wake up call for people in the political arena about the limits of their power in the modern high-tech networked world. Um, and we've got, you know, getting that level of understanding in is going to be absolutely critical to making better policy. Absolutely, absolutely. Let's switch gears a bit and let's go to your recently launched Substack. So it's called Progress. That's it, Progress. Is there something more important to society than Progress? We chose progress because, you know, we, we're coming at our work in public policy from, you know, what we think of as a progressive point of view. And I think that this kind of question of reconnecting progressive politics, in inverted commas, to the notion of progress is really important because I think what you've seen in a lot of countries recently is that, um, and progressive has different kind of local contexts in different places, right? But, but broadly speaking, you know, the kind of, moderate, non-populist, centrist view of the world has, I think, too often collapsed into something which looks a lot like being the guardians of the status quo or, you know, the champions of incremental change in the face of a world that seems to have gone completely mad. And our view is very firmly that that is going to be a dead end, that actually if you are, you know, genuinely of progressive intent, you have to be a champion of progress in the true sense of the word, which is advancing humanity and building a world which is better and fairer and more just. And the way that you do that is not by tinkering around the edges, but by embracing the radical potential of technology and new ways of thinking and, you know, the new culture that is emerging online and new business models that are made possible by the internet. You have to embrace and understand all of this and figure out how do I lean into that? How do I work with it rather than see it as this terrible threat that I have to defend myself against. And so in the, in the essay that um, I published with um, Tony, we say, look, you've got to understand there are really two dividing lines in politics now, and they're not the ones that you think they are if you look backwards. So you look backwards and we think it's about, are you on the left or are you on the right? And are you like libertarian or authoritarian and all the other you know, constructs that belong there? And we say, look, there's two things that really matter. Do you understand that the technology revolution is the central issue of our time? In which case, you know, you've got to realize you're going to change everything about your policy and institutions, or do you think it's peripheral, right? It's just like another thing on the long list of stuff that government has to deal with. 
And then number two, if you understand that it is central, do you think that if you master this properly and, and with care, right? Like we're not, you know, at all minimizing the problems, but if you master this with care and purpose, can you build a better world with technology? Or is it a threat that you have to slow down or try to stop? Those are the things that matter. And the political leaders that, that understand this, that master the implications of the revolution are the ones that will succeed, right? The only way that you take back the initiative is to give people a sense of change and a sense of hope for the future. And you can understand, I think completely why, if that is not on offer, people choose options which you know, are pretty close to burn the whole thing down. Right. One of the things that you wrote that says something like it's become far easier to rally people against something than to force consensus around an alternative. Like that's a big problem. What do you make of that? It's, it's a gigantic problem. And, you know, Martin Gurry and others have written really eloquently on this topic. It's genuinely difficult. And it's, a, I think, a much, you know, it's, it's a phenomenon of the time that we live in because of the Internet and the way that it has fractured people's conversations. I think, you know, you can look around the world and pick your examples of where it's been possible to pull together these really, in some respects, very diverse coalitions of people who are all basically anti, you know, a particular feature or function of the system. I mean, my fear is that, you know, this is effectively a kind of baked in structural advantage to, you know, the kind of populist approach to politics, where all you care about is whipping up the division in order to win power. And then, you know, you see to different, different extents when those campaigns transition to being in an executive role, you know, some are able to force their agenda through others, you know, crumble on contact with reality. But the point is you've got to, like, to counter that, it's not enough to say, you know, um, we're the sensible people. It's not enough to basically run on a platform of my opponent is incompetent. And even now, right, you look around the world in the middle of the pandemic and you see moderates attempting to kind of take the, attempting to take the strategy of saying, you know, look at how the person in office is totally failing to address the situation. And that may be objectively true. The problem you've got is a lot of voters look at the situation and think, well, you know what? Anybody would be having a hard time in this situation. So it's not enough to just be sensible and say, look, we're not, as incompetent as, as, as the other side, you've got to give people something that they can believe in. And, you know, that is possible. You go look at some of the campaigns in the past and the great political campaigns and the ones that, you know, really understood the power of, you know, commanding the future gave people a sense that not only, it's not just an economic story. It's not just about, you know, I want my kids to have, you know, a better and more prosperous life than, than I've had. But, you know, you want straightforward things, right? You want the schools near you to be excellent and to give your kids the best education. You want to be able to trust the healthcare system will take care of you when you need it. You want to be sure that you can, you know, find somewhere to live and that, you know, the environment will be clean and so on and so forth. All of these things that matter to people have tremendous potential to be revolutionized by technology. But we can, we just tipped around the edges of that conversation, you know, to take one example, you know, all the debate about healthcare and technology maybe not all, right? A large part of the debate is stuck in, can I get a video consultation with my family doctor? Can I book an appointment over the internet rather than have to call up and you know, wait in a queue to speak to a receptionist? The conversation we ought to be having is obviously all of that stuff because it's 2020, but 
how do we use you know the tremendous advances in medical technology biotech robotics genomics to revolutionize healthcare and stop people getting sick right that's been the dream forever right preventative rather than you know dealing with you know the fallout from people getting sick it's now within our grasp to harness that that I mean, that you know, that alone is such a powerful idea but you know it's unless you've got the grounding in the technology and it's not about the political leaders necessarily they don't need to be developers right we don't need to send them all on a you know tensorflow course but they do need to understand the contours of the debate and they need to be surrounded by people who understand it and appreciate it and are thinking about what's to come not just what they've dealt with in the past yeah yeah and when you were mentioning predictive health that's part of one of the things that i wanted to talk about today which is the this thing you authored or you presented the new progressive agenda so uh, i want to spend some time on that so maybe take a, a step back so one of the things that are that not many people understand but it's very clear to you or, or at least you're making it very clear is that the institutions of the 20th century are fundamentally mismatched to the challenges of the 21st century why not enough people realize that particularly the people on the institutions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What? So I think there's, there's a couple of things at play here. So number one, you've got a whole set of institutions, you know, across, you know, different forms of government and beyond, which like when you, when you step back and think about what, what makes them different to all the other sectors of the economy that have been changed so much by technology. And I think it's pretty hard to escape the conclusion that it's something to do with competitive pressure, or if you want to look at it the other way, the fact that the state has this kind of natural legislative monopoly over lots of public services. And, you know, you see kind of some um, action around the edges, but by and large, you know, traditional state delivery is protected from the sort of disruption that you've seen in other sectors, right? Because massively more difficult to come along with a kind of smart assembly of commodity technologies and upend you know, a big government delivery department than it is to upend the traditional taxi trade or video rental or whatever else. Um, so part of this, if you're protected from that competitive pressure, then, you know, there's no strong drive to, you know, think that hard about this. Now, look, there are good, creative, excellent, well-intentioned people in public service. Um, you know, no question about that. It's not really about them. It's about the incentives that you face. Why would you take some of these big risks? Why would you try to stand up completely different ways of meeting the needs of your citizens if that is probably not going to be rewarded? It's mostly like downside actually for you because if it goes wrong, you know, you'll be the one that carries the blame. And, you know, you've got no real, um, you know, it's not like you're there, you know, in the same way that you would be as an entrepreneur thinking, how do I scale this and, you know, make the maximum possible benefit? It's more like, you know, you've got a big hulking system and I could, probably around the edges, make it a bit smarter at massive pain to myself for no real credit. So I think that's, that makes it really difficult. The other thing which is, I think, important in this space is that there is just a real, it goes to the, you know, our discussion earlier about these two worlds not understanding each other. In my experience, a lot of the, the reasoning that happens when you're in public policy functions is, is massively hindered by the fact that the internet has broken most of your fundamental assumptions. And so if you want to reason this out by, by sort of you know, analogy to 
a bricks and mortar world before the internet and you want to reason it out by what you think is application of common sense, you get to a totally different answer to if you applied like an internet first, digital first mindset to solve the problem. All right, because you're constrained by what you think is possible. You're constrained by the operating models and the delivery models. And so I think until you actually inject some different perspectives into this, you don't really stand much hope, right? You might be able to solve some things around the margin, but what you need to do is change the way the system thinks. And of course, that is really genuinely difficult. I'm going to go on a tangent right now before we actually start breaking the, the progressive yeah. agenda. And this is something I've been thinking about quite a bit. Uh, so I'm not sure if you read this book, but there's a book called How Asia Works on essentially Asian development, sixties uh, uh -huh. and 70s. And one of the quotes that really got me thinking about policy is something like, even the best policy is only a solution to the development, developmental challenges or a particular moment in time. Eventually, policies that, policies that remain in change turn into bad ones. Uh, should we build planned obsolescence into policy? Like, how do we make sure that even if we fix the problem right now, how do we make sure we just don't get stuck with a bunch of accumulated accidents 10 years from now? Yeah, such a good question. And I think there is an increasingly strong case for that. And, you know, in my experience, you know, in tech in the UK, like it used to absolutely do my head in that here we are trying to, you know, improve the urban mobility market with products like Uber and, you know, our competitors. And the legislation that governs that entire industry, depending on where you were in the country, because different parts of the UK have different rules, but broadly speaking, the legislation, like best, best scenario was from the early 2000s and worst case data from the 1970s. And yeah, like it caught, you know, it, it was a creature of its time. And what it did was it had the effect of foreclosing lots of the benefits that you could obtain from an internet native model for that sector. And the same is true in lots of different arenas. So I think this notion of, you know, planned obsolescence or, you know, sunset clauses for some forms of regulation is an interesting idea. I also think the other way that you solve it is you've got to be much more aggressive about how you think about regulatory reform. So by that, I mean, the traditional model of trying to upgrade regulations is that we spend, you know, a long time trying to understand all of the problems that there are with them. And then you work through and you get this long list of changes that you want to make. And then every single one of those pisses off a vested interest somewhere, right? Somebody who has like, you know, built their business model to fit the current legislation, who is benefiting from it, who just doesn't want me to change this, you know, difficult and a pain. And we spend forever arguing about if we change this, how do I compensate the losers? Maybe I change this, but to balance it, I make this other change. And it's all very understandable because you know, you're in, in this arena and you're trying to craft a coalition that's going to support what you want to do. The problem that we've got in 2020 is that that process is like you know, clipping along and it's going to take several years, you know, best case scenario, to change what's on the statute book. And then, of course, like in the world of the internet where we're deploying a new version of our app 12 times a day, you know, the whole thing, by the time you've changed all the rules, they're already out of date. So one of the things that we talk about in the new progressive agenda is you say, look, maybe you wouldn't do this for the whole economy, but perhaps you should think about some strategically important sectors and you should take a very different approach, which is just to say, look, the same way that actually that in lots of industries, you see 
new competitors arrive and you just put something new adjacent to what's already there and you let people vote with their you know with their dollars right why not do something similar in regulation why not say look for i don't know interurban mobility or you know urban use of drones or telemedicine or a number of other arenas how about keep your old rules for everybody who wants to be in the old rules right next to it new rules for a new world that understand what the hell is going on and you choose right if you want to be in the new rules you know it's not we're not saying no rules. We're saying rules that make sense for the world as it is now. And let people, you know, choose one or the other. And I think you'll pretty soon figure out that, you know, stuff will drift in the direction that is more productive. And maybe you need to repeat that cycle because for sure, like what we construct now will not be right in 10 years time. Yeah. Uh, and a great example, and even outside of the internet is you were talking about Uber and how it takes, let's say, 10 years to actually adjust the regulations to Uber. And now companies like Lilium, they're work, working on flying Ubers, like on flying taxis. Yep. When will that be regulated? So it's sort of... Exactly, exactly. And you think how big the benefits of those sorts of technologies could be. And okay, they're uncertain, but the potential, um, the potential for really interesting, impressive outlier outcomes is high. So the value then of enabling that technology in a safe way which is has the support of the public and policymakers is significant and it's too big to let it get bogged down in you know all of the drama that comes with trying to refine what we've got yeah absolutely absolutely the the barrier should be the let's say the market not regulation uh, yeah um, so can you let's let's talk about the new progressive agenda can you sort of start by breaking it down a bit uh, as best as you can yeah, I will. I'll do my best. So, you know, and it all sits in the context of the discussion that we've had about, you know, the state of politics and how do you build a coalition that's going to be politically effective? Because, you know, having spent a long time in and around public policy and technology, I think the, the thing that really is difficult, and it's why it's not being cracked, is that there's plenty of people who, and plenty of work, which is all about, you know, this is how the world should look from a technology point of view, right? I, you and I, I'm sure armed with Google in five minutes could between us find 200 reports on smart cities and how they should look, right? What's missing is the bit of this that makes it politically actionable, right? What is it that I can take from my understanding and convert into a winning political proposition? So we say in the, in the new progressive agenda, you've got to put technology at the middle of your, like right at the heart of your public policy agenda, and you've got to link it to broadly three categories of things that matter. The absolute first priority here is you've got to show people how technology is going to benefit them in practical ways, right? So this is not about internet of things, smart bins in the city of London, right? It's about we're going to completely alter health and education in ways which will make your family better off and live longer, healthier, happier lives and give your kids better prospects, right? We're going to make sure that nobody is left out of the digital world because everything else that matters is contingent on can you access the internet? You look at large parts of the developing world and it's a real tragedy that so many people are still not connected. And, you know, frankly, now you've got to include in this first category of things dealing with the climate emergency. And, you know, everything that we've learned over the last couple of decades is that if you leave this just to the political process, right, it has, you know, successively failed us. So, look, you don't, like, 
keep working on the climate negotiations and hopefully some countries will you know change to a more practical position but nonetheless actually you've got to pull out all the stops on technology to give you other options right renewable energy carbon capture and the, the broader stuff right around sustainability so number one core of this is bring this to life for people and then i think there's two supporting things that we talk about so one is you've got to understand that technology is going to completely reshape the economic um, system and everything that is around that so you know we've got to give up on these old battles about you know as technology changes work am i going to try and force everybody into whichever category that we used in the 20th century you've got to accept that this is how it is that it has benefits but also challenges and we've got to figure out a set of policy that deals with this so you know on gig economy on regulating big technology companies on how do you um, fund innovation in your economy all these sorts of questions got to get that right because you've got to generate the prosperity to make everything else possible and then the third part is you've got to go for really fundamental restructuring of your government and related institutions government has got to be designed around the reality of the 21st century not around the bureaucracy of the industrial era so that means stuff which you know we're very familiar with in tech right you build a bunch of common platforms that can be reused open up apis for public services inject more competition into delivery so that people can build things that meet the needs of citizens rather than build things that placate the bureaucratic incentives and think really hard about actually how do i make the decisions that governments take feel like they are happening closer to people's daily lives right like you know lots of us you know not living in capital cities feel kind of distant from what's happening it doesn't have to be that way and technology ought to give you these opportunities to engage people and you know do much better you know dialogue and listening and and all of this which you know you see it happening in sort of these sort of prototypical ways right that we all sign the petitions when they come around and you know whatever else but my sense is there is a much more meaningful set of engagement made possible by technology that we ought to grasp now look all of that when you put it together is quite a large set of topics to put on the table but you know that reflects the fact that what we're living through now is the equivalent of it's a 21st century equivalent of the industrial revolution in the 19th century and just like then it's going to change not just the economy but everything right the industrial revolution was also the birth of different political parties social security like massive advances in working conditions the way that our healthcare system was built what we thought about how we schooled our kids you know, whether we schooled our kids right the same all-encompassing change is coming now the only difference really is that it's happening like 10x faster right you can't wait a hundred years for all this to play out, right? And we've got to solve this in a decade. Otherwise it's going to cause us a lot of problems. Yeah, yeah. So Nicolas, who, who introduced us, he's been sounding the alarm about this for, for, for quite some time, right? He has, he has. And, he's, and his work is excellent on this topic. Yeah, but I mean, like, I think that more people have to, you know, have to engage, you know, both in politics and on the tech side, right? Like, you know, we talk a lot about You know, there are technologists in Silicon Valley and in Europe and elsewhere who are literally building the future. And that's a big responsibility, right? You can't divorce that ultimately from politics and policy. Um, you know, you have to bring those things together. Yeah, absolutely. Now, uh, as you said, this is a big package. And 
I think that most people, if they go through it, they would agree that this is good, right? Uh, that this should happen. Now, where do we start? Like, where do we start considering we don't live in a Robert Carter book? Uh, where <laughs> yeah. like, everything can be just pushed down people's throats, right? Yeah, yeah. You have to, um, I think you have to be able to connect it to, like I said, I used the words earlier, politically actionable, right? Like this has to be, can't be something that technologists and commentators impose from the outside. It has to be something that actually has a mandate from citizens. And so a lot of the discussion needs to be with, you know, in the political sphere, right? With the, you know, either with governments who are inclined towards an open mind on these sorts of topics, or with um, the opposition parties who need to figure out, you know, what is the platform they're going to stand on that is going to capture people's imagination. You have to, I think, probably let go of some of your old assumptions about left and right. Right, most of what we describe in the new progressive agenda, I think, you know, transcends this old notion that some policies are left policies and some policies are right policies. Right, the way that I think about it is you got left and right, and then you've got something orthogonal, and it's called forwards or backwards, right? And we're like, we're forwards more than we're left or right. So you've got to like let go of some of those assumptions. You've got to that, understand that means you build some different coalitions and alliances. You know, frankly, one of the things that I think will be interesting in the years ahead is, you know, the, one of the side effects of the impact of the internet on politics is going to be that, you know, it's the same, it's, like first round effect is it destroys the traditional political gatekeepers, right? And so you have all of these movements that are now outside your traditional parties in lots of countries. I think the next round of this is going to be interesting because it then becomes like, what does a political coalition look like? In the past, you say, well, it's, you know, it's the, this party and this union. And, and the answer in future might be some political figures, some companies who've got really interesting progressive agenda and you've seen like lots of tech companies in the last few weeks coming out and you know they've got they're making policy right we're going to be climate neutral we're going to have zero net water impacts we're going to eliminate all of our emissions reductions since the year dot and we're never going to let, allow any more right so um maybe those are an important part of the coalition maybe influencers and grassroots and community groups are part of this but you've got to put together something which is capable of winning power right unless we're going to give up on representative democracy like it's got to be a political exercise in the end. So that's the first thing. And then there's one other critical condition, which is once you win power, you have to be able to deliver. And this means that the policy proposals that you run on, and to be clear, you wouldn't put, you know, all the things that we talk about down as the message for the public is too much to digest, right? You'd have to think, what are the two or three things that I really go hard on? Because, you know, the conversation only cope with that much. But underneath it, you've got to have done the hard work to be confident, you know, you can't guarantee success, but you've got to have done the work to be sure that on day one, you know what you want to achieve and you understand the steps that you're going to take to make that happen. And this is where, you know, that point we discussed earlier about, you know, the politics of being against something rather than being for something is so interesting, right? If you're, if you build the whole thing on what you're against, then when you arrive in office, either you don't know what to do or you can't agree what to do, or what you do try to do has never really had that much attention put on it, and it just collapses when confronted with reality. So you've got to have a plan, and you've got to be humble enough to say, look, the world has got 
massively more complicated. I can't guarantee this is, you know, I'm going to deliver everything that I've said, but, you know, I'm going to be honest with you, the public. This is what we're going to try and achieve. This is how we're going to go about it and how you'll know whether to judge success. Yeah, I think that part of sort of setting the expectation is, is, is key. And you were mentioning Martin Gurry earlier and his central thesis is essentially like the internet makes things so transparent that the people lose faith in the elites, essentially, because they can't deliver what they are promising. So Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that temptation to promise is like built into 20th century politics. Right? It's all about the grand promise in a world where you knew you were not free of scrutiny. There's always been scrutiny, right? And there's been in a country like the UK, you've got the press, you've got parliamentary committees, you've got, you know, there are mechanisms to hold people to account. But that's healthy. But that's healthy. But never has it been at the scale of, you know, minister stands on national TV and makes a claim. And then within 30 seconds, somebody on Twitter has, you know, got the screenshot, the thing that proves that it's not true. That's not healthy. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, you've got to understand the environment that we're now playing in and calibrate accordingly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think politics has never seen such a quick feedback loop. No. no. <laughs> and that makes things very interesting. Um, so another thing that, that caught my attention when you were thinking about like everyone thinks in left to right and you're thinking forward and backwards and you're definitely in the forward camp. One thing about this left right thing is minorities. And you were sort of, you, you're proposing, and I think it makes a lot of sense, that the treatment and equality of minorities is a critical and non-negotiable part, but it shouldn't define the campaign. Like, it seems that increasingly identity is defining not only campaigns, but also life. Why? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I think some of this goes back to, um, you know, this question of, like, the internet and the fracturing of the debate into different communities of interest and it kind of pushes identity to the fore. I think, you know, you've got tremendous positives around this, you know, for people to, you know, find the communities that they, you know, feel part of, can thrive and flourish in. I think the, the political challenge around this is figuring out, you know, where do I make my stand in the public debate? And one of the things that I think is really difficult is that you, know, you run the risk that on the populist side, like the politics of division is such that you get goaded as a progressive by lots of the terrible injustices that you see in the world and you want to make a stand against them. You know, it's very, you know, all these issues that are so important and so fundamental to people who've got a sense of, you know, a particular sense of justice and equality and all of the values which matter in progressive politics but you've also got to accept that a lot of these issues for better or worse are divisive issues and that people have often strong views that may not accord with yours doesn't mean you shouldn't try to change their mind doesn't mean you should surrender or minimize your values and the things that define you but you've got to understand that the way that you improve people's lives and the way that you deliver social justice only comes about if you wield political power. That means you have to hold office and that means you have to win an election. And that means in turn, you have to be able to tell a story which enough people are going to um, want to swing behind you. 
So, you know, look, it's not about um, not engaging and it's not about not being supportive and not being an ally. It's about choosing how you exert that. And do you, like, if you're forced to choose between the politics of winning and the politics of protest, which do you choose? Um, and yeah, you've seen this, I think, you know, to different extents in different countries, but certainly, you know, my experience in the UK, you've seen a campaign at our last general election, which, you know, really enthused a particular segment of the opposition, you know, support base, and, you know, really lit up, you know, some parts of the debate, but it's not enough for that group to feel good about themselves. You know, you have to win. Um, so like, so, I mean, like, so as you say, like, it's not about you, know, you must never let go of your principles. That's why we say like, it's not, you know, it's not, it's not, it's not negotiable, right? Like support for equality advancement of the treatment of minorities and other groups matters. But the way you get that is by having a strong progressive uh, government in power that enables inclusion and social justice and everything else. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we've been pinning technology against policy for the past 40 minutes. So <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's try to make some amends. Like, What's yeah. something you wish to export from tech to the public sector or the reverse? So I think um, when I think about the, um, like my experience in working government and working in the tech sector, one of the things that I noticed most is the radically different treatment of data, by which I mean in, in Whitehall, right, in the centre of UK government, if you ask, please give me a list of um, all the different, you know, like teams and agencies that report into this department and what they do and how many people work for them. A month later, you might get somebody's attempt at an answer and they'd say, this is what we think, but we're not really completely sure. So, you know, good luck. And then, you know, on the flip side of this, you know, you kind of sit, whether you're at Uber or Facebook or wherever else, right? And you've got like hyper granular, real time, understanding of you know your marketplace or your social network or you know your platform we've got to find a way for government to get that level of situational awareness you've got to tread carefully because you know there's all the concerns around you know how far do you let that bleed into surveillance but the world is complex and moving fast and if you don't have the situational awareness i don't think you can possibly hope to make good decisions so i would you know if i had to bring one thing from tech into government it would be that you know, much closer to real-time understanding of the environment that you're operating in and how your decisions are affecting it. Um, if you wanted to go the other way, I would say, you know, you've got amazing policy teams in a lot of tech companies. You know, I would support them much more to help, um, you know, their colleagues see how, just how complicated it is to govern a country. And I don't say that kind of lightly. What I mean is, you know, things can seem straightforward and it's often, particularly when you're in a very solution-oriented environment, like, you know, sure, you should just do X in order to achieve outcome Y. And like in politics and in government, it's, you're dealing with both um, the complexity, right? You've got these trade-offs in all different directions that you're trying to balance. You've got the, you know, the issues to do with the sort of small p politics and the personalities and how do I navigate the bureaucracy and then you've got this notion that actually you haven't got always the luxury of putting some stuff out of bounds, right? So if you're, if you're in tech and you're building your products and you know that, you know, you can reach 90% of your, of consumers, but like the last 10% are going to be too hard, right? They haven't got a phone that supports your app or they, you know, they've got 
whatever circumstances make it difficult. It's fine, right? You just don't worry about them. Don't need to serve them. Put it to one side, crack on with my business. In government, you can't do that. You can't, you can't say, look, you know, the last 10% is too hard. I, you know, let them solve their own problems. You have to roll up all the edge cases, all the hardest parts and have an answer. And that is, you know, that's one of the things that I think sets it apart. So, you know, an appreciation of some of that complexity would really help. And that's, that's not really a technical thing. It's more like, you know, for me, it's, it's in the same category of the discussions about, you know, ethics in design and how do you have more multidisciplinary teams and, you know, how do we make sure that people are thinking about bias when they're coding their algorithms, right? Like it's that awareness that the world is so interconnected now. It's not enough to sit and build great products. You've got to understand what they're going to do to the world. Absolutely, absolutely. Ben Evans has this quote about like policy being like some things are impossible. Uh, most things are trade-offs. There are generally unintended consequences and everything is complicated. And I'm, I'm very sort of critical of our government, but I just wish more people understood that sort of policy. Yeah, 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 exactly. And it's why transparency matters so much, because if you have transparency, you normalize the idea that we're going to make mistakes and get stuff wrong and we're going to learn from it. And if you don't have transparency and you have government continually trying to press release the best interpretation of whatever it is they've done, it just, in today's world, it doesn't build credibility. It builds distrust. Yeah. Let's switch lanes a bit. You maintain this repository of called Deep Index that keeps track of what AI can do and, and where it, it, it is being applied. What's the most exciting or promising application for you when it comes to AI? Wow. So um, when I put that list together, because at the time, a couple of years ago, I was looking for some examples for something I was working on of interesting things people had done with AI. And the best I could come up with was pretty old bulleted list of 10 things. And it struck me there must be more out there. And now I think I've got 800 or so examples on this, on this page. I think the thing that I'll, I'll come to a question about like the, the most exciting, but there's a comment that is important to say ahead of it, which is having compiled this gigantic list, the thing that really struck me is actually how paradoxically maybe how limited the class of applications is of you know, when you, so you get into it and you're like you know, AI is transforming medicine and it's changing agriculture and it's like totally upending blah, blah, blah. and of course most of it is you know to different extents like pattern recognition and reproduction I'm obviously grossly oversimplifying but you know a large class of these problems are broadly similar right can I spot a human in a video and remap them to you know a different perspective can i understand you know a particular type of pest in a field or whatever else so you know on that front i think that it's interesting to see lots of this i kind of wonder the sort of automation benefit i wonder how transformational some of this is i think you know for me the most exciting parts are the like some of the unsupervised learning activities where you know an environment where you get to you know, do interesting things without large accumulation of not needing a large, you know, labeled training data set are exciting because you get the potential to solve problems that, you know, you don't, you know, without a lot of prior study. And then I think for me, I mean, the other part, which is clearly revolutionary is some of the applications in, in healthcare. And I think it's like, you know, for me, less the, less actually the, the eye catching stuff, you know, you see, you see all the computer vision, um, you know, outperforming clinicians at examining, you know, imaging and so on and so forth. Like 
excellent and by all means augment it. I think the stuff which is really cool is things like, um, you know, sort of federated learning and differential privacy. Like how do I extract benefits in ways which give citizens confidence that their data is safe and secure? That's the bit that transforms this from academic application to something with wide acceptance. And if we can master that, because the framing of the public debate around these topics really matters. So if I say to you, I would like to harvest all your medical data because I'm kind of curious and I can't give you many assurances about who I'm going to share it with um, or what's going to happen to it. You might say, you know what, Chris, that sounds you know, kind of sketchy and I'm not sure. Whereas if I can say to you, look, we're going to use your medical data in a way which you know, never leaves your personal control, but contributes to the global fight to find a cure for cancer. You probably say to me, you know what, I'm in. So those advances, I think, are some of the most important and the ones which you know, will change not just the rich world, but change humanity. I'm wondering, did you preface that answer by saying that, in other words, that AI is sometimes overrated? I think there's, um, I think, um, like when I look at that long list of examples that I put together, you know, partly tongue in cheek, like a lot of those are novelty examples. And like, for sure, there are some big things on the horizon, but it feels to me like a lot of it, there are law firms who've trialed an algorithmic, you know, intern who's faster at scanning legal documents than a human being ever could be, right? And there are, you know, millions of other examples, you know, algorithm that can, you know, write passable pop songs or can, you know, change your face in a video, whatever else, like tremendously impressive, right? Technically, that what is possible and the speed that it's possible and, you know, what can be done, frankly, by people with minimal, you know, like technical training, by which I mean anybody can go on the internet, learn Python, open a Jupyter notebook, do the TensorFlow crash course, spin up some cloud compute and have a go, right? Like it doesn't require you to be be backed by a hundred million dollar research lab or whatever else, right? Like the democratization of this is phenomenal. I just wonder like what's, and for sure, I convinced that it's going to change the world in many radical ways. I think a lot of what you see now is the foothills of what's to come. And yeah, I think there is um, there's definitely some hype. I remember I was listening to a show on the radio a while ago and um, AI had come up and they had somebody on, I forget which company it was, but um, someone from the people department was saying they were using AI to you know, revolutionize the way that they did performance management and make sure they found the best performers and so on and so forth. And when I listened to them explain what they were doing, it wasn't clear to me that it was much more sophisticated than a linear regression in Microsoft Excel, but be badged as artificial intelligence was revolutionizing. And so look, I think you just got to be, as a policy person, you've got to be discriminating, right? And you've got, it's why actually having some of this grounding and experience matters because you've got to have some sense of what of this stuff is substantive and where am I being fed hype? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I have a name for that effect. I call it the Lord of the Rings effect because it's widely overhyped, but still underrated for some reasons. Because if you think about the Lord of the Rings movie, it's, it's fantastic and everyone says so. But when you think about things like, I don't know, inventing Elvish, then it's still underrated. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. And I think the thing that's really hard in this arena is um, like, it's almost by definition impossible to see a lot of the future use cases. So we struggle with like, 
what do I understand about the world and where can I see those processes being changed and what you, you know, you need the visionaries and the creatives and others to go and understand the technology and experiment with it to find out there's this entirely orthogonal thing that nobody considered that turns out to be more important than lots of what we're dealing with at the moment. It's going to be wild times ahead. It's going to be wild. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I see, I see a bookstore, uh, a bookshelf on your back. Uh, the ones who are listening don't, but I see it. What are you reading right now? So at the moment, I'm reading um, uh, The Dream Machine. So the story of um, you know, early, early days at ARPA in Silicon Valley. I'm just kind of, you know, less than halfway through, but you know, super interesting. Like this debate has come up a lot in the UK recently about cutting edge R&D and what's the role of the state in supporting this? And, you know, does it give birth? And if so, how to big innovation ecosystems? What, though, I'm really enjoying about it is that it's such a human story. You know, that we get, particularly in tech, I think we get so caught up in, you know, the, the, the principles and the theory and the mechanics and everything else. And, of course, technology ultimately is driven by people and their passions and their creativity. And, you know, you can't disentangle a lot of the things which have happened from the personalities of people involved. So that is, I'm finding that super interesting. But, yeah, like, I kind of think I try to carve more time out to read I mean, I think like lots of us, you know, the torrent of social media coming at you on the internet is hard to resist the lure sometimes. But of course, actually, you know, getting stuck into things that are more substantive is ultimately, I think, more rewarding. And I'm definitely in the camp that thinks that I'm very happy to have my movies and my music digitized, but I like my books to be real physical things. Absolutely. Same here. Um, How do you pick what you read? Mostly via recommendations so you know lots of folk that i talk to regularly tell me what they're reading and one of the incredible luxuries of the internet is of course that the moment somebody makes a recommendation you can open the amazon app and have it at your house uh, the next day which means probably like you know lots of uh, other folk i know i've got a massive backlog of things to um to get through but i mean you know, i try to you know i try to do that and follow recommendations and i try to make sure that you know, so far as anybody can, I try to be open-minded about the perspectives that I choose to read. It's very easy to, you know, we all know this, right? But it's very easy to have a lovely, comforting time reading things that you know you're going to agree with. And it's much more, you know, enlarging to spend time grappling with things that you might not share the author's perspective on. Particularly in politics, you know, I've kind of, you know, tried to spend my time with, you know, people of different political you know heritage or different views on you know contemporary topics because you've got to understand you know in order to be able to debate right absolutely um usually if a book pisses you off it's a pretty good sign hmm. <laughs> yeah exactly and if you feel sort of moved to you know reach out to the author and like really violently disagree with them like i think that is a um like i say that's that's a good thing yeah and you know the world needs more of that you know fearless debates and we've got to find more forums where that's possible and i do think you know that i love twitter and i spend a lot of time in that arena because you know so many people in my world are there and it's important to you know engage but i do sometimes you know my heart sinks when i watch you know the quality of the debate and how easy it is to tip into piling on rather than having a constructive discussion i think this is the right forum for this debate, yeah. or at least a start, right? 
We've been yeah, talking yeah. about very like specific things, and that's sort of that's an understatement for the past hour. And yeah, a bunch of people are going to listen. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right, and I think you know, the more that we can have these sorts of dialogues, and the wonderful thing about the internet is we can have this dialogue now in the open. Right, so in the past, you and I could we could sit in a cafe and we could you know debate and argue and you know kick things back and forth, and that would be super interesting for the two of us. And maybe you know the people on the table next to us. But now, like we can do this in a format which you know enables us to, you know, put this in front of a lot of people for people to choose to listen. You know, you can cite, you know, situate this, you know, in the thread of all the other episodes that you've recorded, and I can do the same for the things that I've been working on. I think it's really powerful. Yeah, absolutely. And and for the ones who are listening, uh, what sort of advice do you have for technology people who are thinking about going into policy or public work? Uh, so number one, you should definitely strongly consider it, if not do it, because the world desperately needs people who understand technology better working in, coming to work in public policy. I would say number two, you know, I think you should realize that policy is an arena where you can make a tremendous impact on the world. You know, like although a lot of this discussion has been around some of the shortcomings in government. The truth is, if you get this right, if you build a compelling argument, if you have practical policies, if you can wield power, you can change people's lives in really meaningful ways. And sure, you can do that in tech, but you can do it outside of tech as well. And the thing that you've got you know, at your back as a technologist coming to policy is you understand this incredible new set of tools that most of your peers are not as aware of. So you've got this incredible actually structural advantage that you get the world that we now operate in. You'll be more effective. You've got more options. So I think there's that. And I think the third thing I would say is um, like none of this is a, um, like it's not a kind of one shot decision, right? Like one of the things that I've learned in my career is that you can dot back and forth. And the more that you do it within reason, right? The more that you do it, the more enriching it is, right? Because actually you're bringing these different worlds together. And I always think the most exciting for me anyway, the most exciting work happens at the happens at the edge of two different disciplines, right? So you can be in tech and you can do all the different things you can do in the tech sector. And you can be in politics or policy and you can do all of that. Or you can be like on the edge where you stand like in both these worlds and you see them both. And it's the, the things where, you know, stuff comes together and you can do more and the things where there's these difficult trade-offs that you're able to resolve, like, they're the places where there's all the friction that there's also most of the value to be, to be found. So, yeah, I think, you know, more people from tech working policy would be excellent. More people from policy finding their way into tech companies. And you see it, right? I've got lots of friends who've been you know, in government or political advisors working in policy functions in, in tech companies. Last thing I'd say on this is I think the very best thing you could do if you're a policy person thinking about tech is find a way into operations rather than ending up in the public policy function of a tech company. Um, you know, it's all good, but you get a very different view of the reality of the business if you're in ops uh, or products or somewhere than if you do if you're you know more in the you know translating back into government. Don't spend forever there, but it's eye-opening. Yeah, and that was some advice for sort of tech people going to going into uh, policy or the other way around. And for the rest of us, uh, in a world where we're so disappointed with our elites, why should we be optimists about government? I think, well, I think um, one should always be optimistic. It's a choice. 
But I think the thing that I would say is, in the end, I remain of the view that most people in politics and policy and government have good intent and, you know, want to make the world a better place, you know, and put themselves through pretty arduous, you know, work day to day in order to, to do this. And I also think, um, you know, you might feel disappointed by some of the options available now or recently, but the time will come when a progressive political leader, movement, party gets their head around what is possible and puts together a platform that, you know, you will feel you know, is right for the future. You see it now, like, um, you know, amongst all the you know, politicians and policy people that I spend time with, I am optimistic about a generation of leaders who are maybe not leading countries at the moment, but I think have a reasonable expectation that maybe one day they would be. Like you and me, they've grown up with the internet and they, you know, it's part of their life rather than something that happened to them in the middle of their life. They think about the world differently. They see the possibilities. You know, I think the rest of us have to do what we can to enable and encourage and support the leaders of the future. And if we can, then, you know, I think that you should be optimistic about it. And, you know, even in the darkest moments, you should remember that it won't always be like this. And, you know, you see the tremendous strides we've made, you know, in recent years. Sure, like a lot of stuff has been, you know, really difficult, but we keep moving forward. Thank you so much for your time, Chris. It's been a great chat. I really appreciate it. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. Hey, this is Gons again. If you enjoyed this episode of the CTL podcast, please let me know by leaving an honest review. If you want to get more good stuff from me, subscribe to SeatTable.com. SeatTable is a weekly newsletter on European technology. It goes out every Friday morning and it's read by thousands of founders, investors, and operators. That's all for today. Thanks so much for listening. See you next time.